So anyway, me and Casey were talking and, and she gets on, I need to use the phone. And Casey said, we'll be off in a little bit, ma'am. And then she get right back on there. Can I use the phone? And Casey said, we'll be back and we'll be off in a little bit, ma'am. And uh, she gets on one more time. He said, look here, you old bitch. He said, you get off his phone and don't you let me hear you've been bath mouth mirror. I'll come up here and kick you in the ass. You fart like a thousand pound mule. <laughs> Boy, that phone hung up and, and uh, we didn't hear from her again. Hi, I'm Gary LeFew, and welcome to Trouble Expected. I know that name. Uh, anyway, one of the uh, purposes of this podcast is uh, to uh, inform, uh, you know, any barrel racers, bull riders, <laughs> bronc riders, calf ropers, team ropers, anybody out there that... Uh, that likes some tips about how to win. You know, I've been, I've been working with winners and losers for the last 60 years. And, and one of the things I've found out, it's just, it's, it's right here between your ears. What's, you know, whether you're going to win or not. And, and a lot of that has to do with your breathing, you know, so I'm going to be, uh, you know, bringing in a lot of experts uh, in, in the field, interviewing them on, on their techniques uh, I've had a lot of luck myself. Uh, you know, we've got 25 world championships with our students. So not only we teach great mechanics, but we also teach them, you know, how to get your mind right, which is uh, I'd been six months without riding a single bull when I got into positive thinking uh, and self-hypnosis. And uh, the first book I read got me hooked. I started reading every book I could and listened to every tape I could. But I think more importantly, most people read books, but they don't. Uh, they don't do they don't do the exercises. I mean, if you're learning to rope or ride bulls, there's drills you have to do every day. You have to do these drills over and over and over again. Well, mental drills are the same way. Uh, reading a book and, and getting information don't make you better. What makes you better is is doing the mental calisthenics, working at it to the point where you don't have to think when you get to the rodeo. Uh, most people are in the practice pen. They go out and they practice, they practice, they practice. And then they'll change their whole mental attitude. When they go to the rodeo, they start thinking, you know, they'll get everything going good in the practice pen without thinking. Then all of a sudden they start thinking at the rodeo and everything falls apart. So you, there's a right brain and left brain. So you got to learn, learn how to work on the right brain. And uh, that's what I specialize in. And that's, uh, you know, I got into meditation and every morning I'd get up at five in the morning and, uh, there was a guy back back then by the name of George Paul uh, that come out of the American Junior Rodeo Association and just overnight become the the overnight king. You know, he rode 67, 69 bulls in a row, I think. Um, no matter whose bull it was, if it was rank, there was a prize. Uh, you wouldn't go to buck George off. I know Mel, uh, Mel Potter, you know, who owns... Uh, um, you know, the trying to think of this company, the oh, the cranberry juice, cranberry juice guy. Yeah. So anyway, so he had plenty of money, you know, and they put this uh, rodeo outfit called Rodeo Inc. together. And and so they would um, they'd go out and buy the rankest bull in the country. And then George would uh, draw him when he'd come to the rodeo. I don't know whether they're fixing the draw or not. Could have been because they back then they did it with the secretaries. And but, uh, but somehow he would miraculously draw this unwritten bull and ride him and then they go get another one. <laughs> Mel's told me one day, he said, you know, money's no object. There ain't a bull out there I can't buy, but they don't make one that could throw George Paul off. You know, so um, one of the things that I learned in, in positive thinking is, is what they call role model. You know, when you find 
you know, what it is that you want to be. And then you copy that person or the person that you want to be. So I would intently watch George Paul ride. I'd watch his moves. Uh, and there was something about George when he rode a bull that you kind of felt sorry for the bull because he just, he dominated, you know, every move that bull made, he just made a counter move that just dominated him. And, and, and so I, I spent a lot of time watching him. We didn't have no video in those days. And then I programmed that into my mind when I did visualization, when I did drills, uh, every day I do drills that I, that, uh, which were based off moves that I seen him make. And as I did them, I would get a mental picture of George doing them and I would pretend I was George. Uh, when you're on the pretend side of the mind, you're on the right brain. When you're thinking, you're on the left brain. So you want to learn, learn to really deal on your magic in your imagination. Always try to imagine what it looks like and what it feels like you know, to, to perform whatever it is that you're working at. Breathing becomes very big. Um, your average breath rate is about 12 to 18 breaths per minute. You want to slow that down to, you know, I get down to a couple breaths per minute, sometime a, a breath and a half. Um, funny when you, when you, when I, I, you know, I, I time people on how many breaths they take a minute, you know, and one breath in one breath out one. And then, and they're, and they're normally 12 to 18 breaths per minute is your average. We slow that down to about three breaths per minute, very slow in. And as you, as you breathe out, you, you breathe out the tension and, and, and you bring, uh, bring in the good stuff. When you breathe in, breathe out the bad stuff. Um, at the same time, you want to conjure up the best feeling you ever had when you, when you were, you know, whatever event you were doing, you know, with barrel racing, bull riding, bronc riding, bulldog, and conjure up what it felt like when you were winning, you know, and then just clear your head and go do it. Take that feeling and go with it. And, and you'll be amazed. It opens up everything that you did when you performed well before and, and it'll carry you there again. That and the slow breathing, you know, so because that puts you on the right brain. You have two sides of the brain, right brain, left brain. The right brain's the creative side. Uh, the other side is, you know, gives the orders, you know, the, the right brain cares about. So in your imagination, on your left brain, you create the situation that you want to happen. And then you turn it over to the right brain to make it happen, you know. And you, and you do drills, you know, mental drills and physical drills, both over and over and over again to get to the point where, you know, uh, the funny thing about uh, running mental pictures through your mind over and over again, your mind cannot tell the difference between a real experience and a vividly imagined experience. And the thing of it is, all your emotions stem from, from your right brain. So the motions of confidence are they also the motions of depression and, and lack of confidence. Uh, that's going to stem from that mind depending on how you program. Uh, once you go do things over and over and over again, um, pretty soon your mind starts to believe whatever you put in. Anything you run through your mind repeatedly, it's going to eventually believe. And so, you know, I remember when I when I was role modeling George Paul after bucking off for six months in a row, my wife was pregnant. She was saying, get a job. You know, I just, you know, I, I didn't want to give up on my dream, but it was getting damn close to because I'd been six months, hadn't stayed on a single bull. I'd made the NFR the year before, ended up 10th in the world, my third year out, everything and went good. Because I think when I first started, I was so enamored with bull riding that I was just, I was constantly thinking about where I wanted to go that next, that, at that next step. And 
famous philosopher said the best step, best, uh, best uh, mindset that, that a human can be in is called a state of positive expectancy. When you're dreaming about how good life's going to be when you get to that next destination. For me, I was working at a miserable job on the coast of California. It's foggy, windy, cold, miserable every day. That bitey type cold that just eats through you. And uh, so every day I went to that work, you know, I showed up early, stayed late. I made a hand, you know. They tried to promote me as a boss, but I said, I ain't going to be here long enough because my my whole objective is to get good enough to where I can quit this job and go out there and make a living working eight seconds a day on the rodeo trail. And uh, so I, I think, you know, having a miserable job really helps because eight seconds on a bull should, you know, no matter, you know, a lot of guys think about, you know, how ranked the bull is, how it might hurt you or this. But when you stop and think about it, you only got to work eight seconds a day as opposed to we we're putting in 16 hours and just during the space race. And I was working on missile, painting missile gantries uh, at Point Arguello, which is part of Vandenberg Air Force Base. And, uh, you know, so I hated that place. Hated it. <laughs> so every time I come back, it made me that much more determined to get out of there. It gave me something to dream about. You know, here I am in this miserable place. Here I am going to be out there working and making a living eight seconds a day. So the bulls didn't look all that bad compared to that miserable job. And uh, and and the better I got at bull riding, um, you know, the more fun it got to be. And I ended up making the finals <clears throat> my third year out, ended up 10th for the world, made my first national finals, Jim Shoulders, the legends, pulling my, pulling my rope every night. Um, and, uh, you know, so they said, so. Man, I was I was winning. I was, I was I was making money. I rode a really loose rope then, and and during the eliminator round, I had a big belly rolling bull. And he, when he belly rolled, my rope come across the back, went down arm, stepped on my ankle, put me out of competition for about six weeks. But during that six weeks, I got married. I had a kid on the way. I started worrying about responsibility. And that was the first time in my life I really started to worry about what would happen if things go wrong, instead of worrying about what would happen if things go right. And uh, the thing of it is, whenever you worry, you're rehearsing a negative end result. The best thing about worry is you can also worry about good things happen. You know, and if you put in as much repetition as you do worrying about things going wrong and you worry that much about things going right, you're programming your mind for something positive instead of a negative. Because the mind cannot tell the difference. Whatever comes in there, it thinks you want that to happen. So whenever you worry and you and you and you emotionalize those thoughts, the most powerful thoughts are, are the most programming. And when you emotionalize your thoughts, uh, especially of fear and doubt, worry, anger, and jealousy, those are all negatives. And whenever you start to worry about those, uh, anything has got those in them, uh, you're just taking yourself the other direction. Uh, you're you're attracting more of it into your life. You know, and you just you just you just get eat up with it. <laughs> so um, one thing after another happened to me. I just kept falling off, falling off, getting broker and broker, and more disgusted. The harder I tried, the worse I did. Um, and then I, I read a book called Psycho Cybernetics, and you know, it was for the first time. I think I was twenty two years old, the first time in my life. Here's a book that explains how the mind works and how to work for you and or to work against you. It doesn't care. It's just a damn computer. You know, but it's the most sophisticated computer on earth. It works at the speed of light and it processes a billion pieces of information per second. So where are you going to find a better piece of machinery to work with than that? So 
once I realized how that mind worked and how it, you know, how I could make it work for me instead of like I'd been doing working against me, then I then I started to reprogram it, you know, and that takes a minimum of 21 days. Um, so every morning, you know, and, I, and, and also uh, that first book I read um, was called Self-Image Psychology. Inside your brain is a blueprint of who you are and what you are capable of achieving. You will never go over that until you remove that block. And it's so far below what you're capable of achieving that it's not even close. But as long as it's there, you're bound by it. And it's based on what people have told you and what you've told yourself up until now. Um, so I realized at that time that I I felt like that I'd worked up to, my, to, to the point where I was a good bull rider, but I never felt down deep that I was going to be a great bull rider. And... Uh, and I think that was because of that, so that self-image and, and and coming out of the Dust Bowl uh, of Texas, my folks come to California. We we didn't have a lot of money, you know, and uh, so uh, you know when I went to school on, on Oakey Flats where I was raised, all the kids uh, when they bought you pants, they bought them too big, too big around and too long, so you roll them up the knees and roll them down. I inherited my brothers who was three years older than me. They all had patches in them. You had to wear suspenders to hold them up. And I was all right on Oki Flats. But once I got to school, then people made fun of me, uh, call me grits and all kinds of stuff. That has a, lot, a lasting effect on your subconscious mind and on your, and on your self-image. And um, I think all through school, I never had a girlfriend. I was too shy and never felt worthy, I think, of having a girlfriend, actually, um, because of low self-esteem. So when I got into bull riding, you know, that kind of gave me an avenue to get out of that and get some, you know, get some worth in my life to feel good about myself. But even then, there was still that that lingering self-image that was saying, you're this, but you're not that, you know, you're not championship material. Um, you'll never be that good. Now, those guys are in a special class. But once I realized I read that book, it made me realize I had the same mind, the same body, the same same capabilities as the next man. I just needed to get rid of that block, open up my mind, and and then copy the best guy that was out there. And uh, two months of reprogramming my mind and taking myself in my mind as if I was already there. I was riding those rank bulls. I was. Uh, just like George Paul, I was making those George Paul moves. I was jumping off, raising my hand, feeling the exhilaration of 50, 60,000 people screaming their lungs out in one of those big venues. And, uh, you know, just doing that over and over and over again every day. Uh, at first, your old self-image will fight back. and say, what the hell are you doing here? You know, this is stupid. The cowboys don't do this. Meditation doesn't work. And they give you all kinds of, of, of bullshit. Uh, so anyway, you, you just have to fight through that, you know, because it'll eventually go away, but it's going to fight you for a little while. That old self-image is going to, you know, just, uh, just keep lingering and keep, you know, sabotaging your efforts. But once I got through the 21 day deal that uh, Maxwell Moss talked about, then I started to feel, yeah, I started to feel different. I started to feel confident. I, I just felt like that. Uh, success was inevitable. It was, uh, I mean, it was, it was just a matter of time that I was going to get there. And uh, I, I never forget going to Denver. Uh, 
flying in there looking at that town underneath and it was just like it was you know this was my oyster you know this was it you know i was i don't think i've ever been that confident in my life um to get to prepare for 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 the rodeo i didn't have no place to practice i'd go get on these herford bulls and i got on about you know 50 60 herford bulls so every time i'd ride Say I get 10 road. I say I've rode 10 bulls in a row without getting bucked off. I'd ride 15. I've rode 15 bulls in a row without getting bucked off. I've rode 20 bulls in a row. I've rode 25. I've rode 30. I just keep bragging on myself, even though those Herefords, they weren't like anybody could ride them. But it was just something about getting on a big, fat, mushy bull and just dominating him like my hero, George Paul. And uh, so I just, I, I, I just, I just kept bombarding my mind with these, with these positive images of me riding ranked bulls like my hero, George Paul. And uh, when I got to Denver, when I pulled into the rodeo there, I've never been that confident in my life. I tell you what, I, I felt like I could, I, I could ride anything with hair on it. And I ended up being one point off the all-time record on the first bull I got on. Went three months without getting thrown off. Um, I ended up runner-up that year for, for the World Championship behind my hero, George Paul. Uh, he won the national finals one second. So I <laughs> come a long way in a short period of time, just by copying the guy I wanted to be. So there's uh, something that you guys uh, to think about. And, and, and we'll, we'll cover more of this and more, more of these podcasts. I'll bring in people with, with, with different techniques that'll help you. Uh, but it's a, uh, it's a fun adventure when you start playing uh, pro programming your mind and start programming for greatness. Cause uh, the more time you spend with it, the more you realize what an incredible piece of machinery the human mind is and how it is. And there is nothing that is not capable of, of, of achieving. Now today uh, I like to feature uh, stories. Uh, you know, I've been around since I think I got on my first bull in May of 1963. So I've seen a lot of characters come and go, uh, you know, really colorful characters, a lot of great stories. And, and, and people always told me, they said, you know, if, if you don't tell these stories, they're going to be lost, you know, and, and so they, they need to be told, they need to be archived. And so this is kind of my way of, of uh, kind of telling rodeo tales that, uh, that, uh, that I actually witnessed uh, and uh, some of them I heard, you know, but most of them, uh, you know, I was there and I witnessed, you know, but some of them are kind of passed on from other guys that were there. So today we're, we're actually featuring one of the most colorful cowboys of all time, the great Casey Tibbs. Uh, Casey was born in 1929, Fort Pierre, South Dakota is right on the, um, right next to the Indian Reservation. I think it was, uh, uh, they just had a raise in a log cabin. He had 10 brothers and sisters. Um, but he went on to come out of there to be one of the greatest, the greatest bronc rider of all time. I think he won six, six world championships, two all around championships and one bareback championship. But what was even greater about Casey was he was such a character. He was, he was probably one of the great practical jokers of all time. Um, loved humor. He was, he just, uh, he, he was fun to hang around, fun guy. Um, and, and, Anybody that's ever followed rodeo has probably seen Hawkeye Henson and Bobby Brown jump off their Bronx and land on their feet and tip their hat to the crowd and walk off. And really a classic thing to do. Casey, on the other hand, uh, even did one even classier than that. Uh, we were at St. Paul, Oregon back in the early 60s, and Casey was making a comeback. He was up in the standings. 
wins the bronc ride, makes this great bronc ride in front of a sold house crowd. And, and St. Paul's one of the bigger rodeos over the fourth. And uh, when he jumped off, jumped off the horse, he hung on to the buck rein. And as he did, he, he planted his foot in the, in the ground, spun that horse around with his still hanging on to the buck rein. And at the same time, takes his hat off, you know, to the crowd, you know, and then the pickup man come riding up and he tosses the rein and goes strutting off. I mean, of all the things I've seen in rodeo, I don't think I had ever seen anything classier than that. It was, it was, he was just the ultimate cowboy. Uh, I think he went when he was 16 years old, he drove a herd of bucking horses uh, out of the Black Hills there, uh, run into a blizzard and, you know, damn near froze to death, but luckily and <clears throat> found a, a farmer that was, he, he would let him put his horses in the corral and, and, and put him up for the night before he didn't freeze to death out there. And then the next day when it cleared up, he uh, herded those horses onto the, wherever the railroad track was, loaded them onto railroad cars, got in there with them, went to Kansas to where uh, uh, the Roberts, uh, Gerald and Ken Roberts dad was a contractor. And there was 25 or 30 horses, something like that, end up being some of the great horses in rodeo. He gets on every one of them and, and rides them, you know, and then sells them to this guy. And so um, anyway, <clears throat> one of my favorite stories about Casey was uh, one year we was at the Cow Palace in San Francisco and Casey had went to work for some rich guys down in uh, San Juan Capistrano. So he comes in walking around the cow palace and he's got just a half a mustache, you know? And so naturally you, you, you ask him, hey, Casey, what's the deal with that half a mustache? He said, well, I went to work with these rich sons of bitches down here in San Juan Capistrano. So he said, the first day I went to work, I, uh, I walked in and, uh, and uh, the boss said, what's the deal with this half a mustache? He says, well, I didn't know where you liked me with a mustache or without one. So I thought I'd meet you halfway. You know? So that was a typical Casey. Uh, Calgary one year, you know, into that same year, he's making that comeback. You know, he was a little older than us because we were in our early 20s and he was probably about 10 years old. He's probably about in the mid 30s at the time. Um, maybe I'm a little older than that. But uh, some English women come up and they go, oh, cowboys, you know. So uh, they're asking us what we do. And uh, they asked me, I said, I'm a bull rider. And, and the other two guys asked women, they were bull riders. And then they turned to Casey and they said, oh, and how about you? And he said, I'm a bronc rider, man. She goes, oh, you're a bit old for that. He said, you'll think old when I rear up on you. <laughs> you know? so, anyway, that was Casey. Uh, uh, he calls me up one time uh, and I had a party line, you know, and so uh, had this old bitch down the down the road. She every time I'd get on there, she'd get on there. Can I use the phone? Can I use the phone? You know, she was just uh, or she'd be listening on you. You could hear that phone pick up. She'd be listening to you, your conversation. So anyway, me and Casey were talking and and she gets on. I need to use the phone. And Casey said, we'll be off in a little bit, ma'am. And then she get right back on there. Can I use the phone? And Casey said, we'll be back. And we'll be off in a little bit, ma'am. And uh, she gets on one more time. He said, look here, you old bitch. He said, you get off his phone and don't you let me hear you've been bad mouth, Mary. I'll come up here and kick you in the ass. You fart like a thousand pound mule. <laughs> Boy, that phone hung up and and uh, we didn't hear from her again. Um, Hawaii, him and uh, him and uh, Cotton Rosser went over to fly to uh, Hawaii. And there's a guy named Buddy Gibson. Uh, that had a rodeo outfit over there. And, and so Casey was judging cotton was running the shoots and um, buddy, he was, he was, uh, he was flanking, you know, so 
Buddy was kind of like cotton. Either. The show had to go on. He, he run a quick show. And I mean, he a lot of hollering, a lot of yelling. And so anyway, this um, big old fat kid that I think he was in um, probably in the Navy or something like he crashes and, and boy knocks him colder in a wedge, you know, and, and uh, cotton, he runs over and he's checking him out and, and uh, Buddy's back on the back of the shoots and he, he hollers out and he says, is he going to live? And he's and Cotton says, well, I think so. You know, he woke up yet, but I think he's going to live. He said, well, get that son of a bitch out of there. <laughs> so we got a show to put on. And, and Casey goes, hold on, you bloodthirsty cocksuckers. He said, we ain't going nowhere. We find out whether this kid's going to make it or not. You know, so so he made him, made him slow down a little bit and make sure that kid was okay. At least let him wake up before they drug him out of there. Casey was uh, like I say, he was he was a big he was a big practical joker, and uh, he uh, he he loved he in 1950 he he won the IPRA Association the PRCA and 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 between that and matches he made eighty thousand dollars that year. Can you imagine eighty thousand dollars would be like a million dollars today? I mean that's how that's how good a cowboy was and that's how much money he had. So he'd go into a dealership and buy a brand new. Um, I think he wrote a, a purple Lincoln convertible, you know, and because uh, Casey had everything he wore, his chaps, his shirts, he loved, he loved the color purple. So uh, you always know him and he stood out and he was, he always had him, he dressed really sharp, uh, had a big, good looking hat, had him always had a scarf on. Uh, but uh, anyway, so he is, uh, he go by these, these brand new Lincolns. And then when he's driving down the road, he'd see some, you know, some guys, some some guy or several guys hitchhiking and have their suitcases alongside the road. Well, he'd pull over. And then when they drove in and dumped in the, into the bar ditch, he'd run over their suitcases, you know, and laugh. You know, he thought that's funnier now. Well, a couple of these cowboys, they, they loaded up their uh, their uh, their suitcases with bowling balls or rocks or something, you know, but they were they were out there beside the road one day and they knew Casey was leaving town. And here he come going like a bat out of hell. He sees him. He boy, he pulls over that side of that road, you know, doing about 80 miles an hour. They dive into the bar ditch. He hit them doggone suitcases and tore that doggone Lincoln all to hell, you know. So anyway, some of the sometimes stuff backfired on him. But, uh, you know, he, I'm sure he just went down and bought him another one because he uh, he never looked back. Uh, one of his favorite things to do is back in those days. Cowboys would uh, they uh, they wore them fancy boots and them fancy tops and they tuck their tuck their pants in them. They'd go in the bar with them tucked in with them fancy looking boots, you know. And, and Casey he'd walk up to the bar and be bullshitting with them. And while he's bullshitting with them, he'd pee in their boots. <laughs> so you know, so um, guys would get you know all of a sudden they just felt felt you know pesco coming down their doggone boot, you know. And, and, that, and that's, that's Casey for you. I remember probably the last thing that uh, that I, when I seen Casey because he died when he was sixty of cancer, and um, we we're on a trail ride in California, the Rancheros Vistadores, and um, I seen Casey and he was in this wheelchair and he looked horrible, you know. And I said, "God damn, Casey, I hate sure hate to see you, you know, um, looking like this, you know." And he said, "Yeah," I said, "God damn," I said. I'd, I'd rather went down the arms of a jealous man's wife than die of this damn shit, you know. So. But uh, they said when uh, when he died, he was, you know, he, he was I can't remember who was with him, probably his wife or somebody. And, and uh, the last thing he asked her, he said, what do I do? And she, she told him, she said, uh, you know, follow the light till you see cowboy hats. 
and he looked up at her and he winked and and then you know his, his spirit lifted you know but there'll never be another like Casey Tibbs. I'm going to tell you what, he was one of the most flamboyant guys, one of the funnest guys, so, you know. But um, there again, he, he loved he loved practical jokes. But when it come time to get the rodeo and ride, the guy could ride, you know. So anyway, stick around with us. Uh, we're going to, like I say, we're going to be doing, uh, telling a lot of stories about different guys. I think uh, the next guy that uh, we're going to uh, showcase is, is a guy named Buffalo Buddy Heaton. You know, this guy was bigger than life. He was so wild and crazy that uh, the PRCA or the RCA then kicked him out of the. <laughs> he couldn't. He couldn't. Even, you know, a bullfighter or a clown any, anymore in the United States because he was just too crazy for them. So he ended up ended up his career in Canada. But I uh, got some really entertaining stories about Buddy Eaton and the things he did. So probably on the next podcast we're not going to be covering some uh, some of the mental side of the game, but we'll also be showcasing. Uh, one of the most colorful guys in, in, in rodeo history, uh, the great Buddy Eaton. So join us. Thank you very much. Eric Estep here. This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries. Get it done with green. Forney offers a full line of welding and plasma cutting machines, metalworking accessories, and more. For do-it-yourselfers all the way to professional metalworkers, Forney has everything you need for your next project. Shop Forney's top-of-the-line products at forneyind.com. That's Forney, F-O-R-N-E-Y, ind, I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you.